I'm Baratunde Thurston, and I feel like we're having a moment. When Officer Derek Chauvin killed George Floyd, something in America broke. I'm going to try to explain it. From the COVID connection to what defund the police actually means. When Donald Trump encourages cops not to choke people, you know something's different. Listen to We're Having a Moment on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, and wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Chelsea Handler. Welcome to Life Will Be the Death of Me, a production of iHeartRadio. I'm sitting here with my psychiatrist, Dan, and my assistant, Brandon, because Brandon and I are attached at the hippity hips. And I wanted to bring Dan on to um, reminisce about my therapy and how we met, which was on my Netflix talk show. Anyway, hello, Dan. Thank you for coming. Hi, Chelsea. Good to be here. Hi. Hello, Brandon. It's nice to see you again after seeing you you at my house this morning earlier. Um, So, Dan, I met you when I interviewed you about brain development, childhood, adolescent brain development, right? Right. It was more focused on that. It was focused on that in a school. We were in like a school hallway. Yes. Yes, I remember that somewhere. Mm -hmm. Yes. Um, And you were talking to me about the brain. And as I talk about in my book, you talked about the brain in a very kind of literal sense in a a kind of scientific way that was very... um, easy for me to wrap my head around. I, I was interested in that. And then I think when we met, I did ask you a couple of questions about drinking and about drug use. And you kind of said to me, do you want to, I think you said, would you like to talk about your drinking? That's right. Well, yeah, I mean, there, there were questions that were coming up that were um, clearly you wanted to know more than just the show was addressing. So I actually... Um, was just asking if you wanted to talk more about that. Mm-hmm. You know, the impact of drugs on the brain. Yeah. Yeah, you seemed interested. Yes, I'm always yeah. interested in, in the subject of drugs. And then, yes. I mean, obviously, I was asking for a friend. So, A th- friend who lives very close to your body? Yes, that mm-hmm. one. Um, so then we went, Brandon, you didn't find it, right? Because I didn't go to therapy right after the election. I, I interviewed Dan for my show. And yes. then months later, I believe, a couple of months later, I asked you to reach out to him. Yes, and set an appointment. And set an appointment. So that was sometime in 2017. Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. So um, let's talk about our therapy. Okay. I know you don't feel comfortable talking about this, so I have to constantly give you permission to talk about my therapy because it's out. The secret is out. Yes. So that's a great place to start because, you know, usually, um, or I would say always as a therapist, you know, I don't speak about the therapy with anyone but the therapist in the setting of therapy. And so, you know, as a professional, uh, I'm a psychiatrist, um, it's good to know. Extremely unusual to be in this situation where, you know, number one, you wrote a book about our our relationship in the therapeutic experience, and it's been incredibly inspiring for people. So that was an incredible gift. And then there have been now moments where, because it's public, people will ask you about it. And we spoke at one conference together where, you know, uh, you, you brought up that I was the your therapist, and I had just given the keynote presentation right before yours. And then we were on the stage together for a Q&A, and people seemed to really respond to that. So, you know, from the professional point of view, this is extremely unusual, but because it's your idea that you came up with it, and I actually think it can do good in the world, then I'm open to really thinking deeply about doing this, even though it's not the usual thing that is done of a therapist 
and a client, a patient, you know, the person working with them. Has this been a pain in the ass for you at all, me writing a book about us? Not even one moment. Well, that's great news because I, the response I got from the book was, and the responses I get on, on my on social media and all the the mess, direct messages from all these strangers about all their experiences of death and loss and grief has been so moving and it was so unexpected. I mean, maybe it wasn't unexpected, but I I didn't really I thought I was telling my own story and I didn't realize I was telling a lot of people's stories. Right, and I think that's you know, and I've said this to you because I think. Your work is really an incredible gift. Here we go. I'm sorry if you can hold on to these compliments. I really think it's an incredible gift. First of all, that you're willing to be so open uh, about what I think is a very courageous journey that you've been on in therapy. And from you know what people are um, giving you feedback about, it's inspiring them. And we saw it at the conference Wisdom 2.0, that people would get to the microphone and say, you are inspiring me to look deeply into myself and find the parts of myself that have been blocked. And I want to get help, you know, in, in, in therapy. And so when you can do that to actually take people who've been, you know, not moving forward and feeling like, I don't know what I'm going to do with my life. And because your book is so clear and it's funny and it's really articulate and in so many ways brilliant, you know, you're able to really show people, you know, this isn't magic. This is something you can do if you've had a, a loss or a trauma that you can actually seek professional support, do the reflective work in therapy, see the benefits, for example, of meditation, and, you know, as you say in the book, turn your head around. And so that's an incredible gift. And so to me, it's all positive. The biggest gift, I think, is learning how to sit still with my feelings and in a moment when I want to be reactive about breathing. Like Brandon has seen me you know, freak out a lot over really stupid things. Like, you know, if because if, I'm always rushing around and like dropping things and I freak out and, you know, and then I like lose my temper and I'm just mad at myself because of my like helpless little girl feeling. So now when things like that happen, the way I move through the world and like through my house is just slow. Like I just take my time and like think about what I'm doing, even if it's minutia and mundane, yeah. all of the mundaneness in life, I pay much more attention to so that I'm not... um rushing and blasting through it. The part that I didn't write in the book, which is which is the part that's been happening since I finished the book, is the, the my meditation really like I've learned how to meditate. I mean, I'm sure I'm not there yet, but I'm getting close to like really clicking in with that because you forced me to do it for three months. Yes, I forced you. You did. Mm-hmm. And I said I didn't want to do it for three months because that sounded like a pregnancy. And then he reminded <laughs> me that pregnancies are longer than three months. <laughs> And then I did it for three months, and now it's been like six or eight months. And I started at Christmas last year. So where's Brandon? Will you whip up that calculation? Six months. <laughs> yeah, we're, we're about six months. Okay, <laughs> thanks. Um, so I and now I do it every day. And if I don't do it, I feel off. Like I texted Brandon yesterday saying, "Remind me to meditate" because I got up and had to rush off to something. So um, it's definitely helpful. I know that I have a long way to go, though. Um, but what I didn't get to address in the book, which was all about our therapy and you r- pointing to me where my kind of trapped pain was and my unearthed, you know, trauma, so to speak, and all the stuff that I was not being honest with myself about or not tending to myself about. And my brother dying, my mother dying, my father kind of dying after my brother died, all of those things. So that was our like I, journey, I have to say, because that's the only word applicable to this, which is such an annoying word to me. Whenever I would use it, you'd get really 
yeah, stuff. Journey. It just sounds so corny. I think like, you could take it back though, because a lot of people use it. Well, I'm gonna take. I took back the, the orange, so I might take back Journey yeah, I too. Think you mm-hmm. Okay, but I don't know how to. Okay, let me think about taking that back. Mm-hmm. What I haven't really addressed, well, because it didn't happen until after the book, was the real kind of. Um, presence of mind and consciousness that we've we talked about a lot during therapy but didn't click for me until I started meditating and until I started paying attention to all the little things Mm -hmm. and then I started to go okay this is what's like being mindful is and consciousness and paying attention not rushing and having exchanges with people and breathing all day long like checking in and going okay stop breathe be in this conversation noticing when your thoughts go away from what you're focusing on and my attention is so much greater than it was when I met you, when I thought I had mm-hmm. ADD. What does that feel like with the change now? Calm. And what's that feel like? Say? Mature. <laughs> <laughs> I say calm and mature. Okay. I feel like a, like a woman, like yeah. I, not a woman. I mean, yeah, I mean, I feel more mature than I've ever felt. Like well. you're the adult here. Mm-hmm. So, and then now I'm acting like one. Mm-hmm. So, so literally, I, when you say calm and when you say that you're mature, can you share with us, what does it actually feel like? Because you're saying that, you know, two years ago, before we started the work, it was one way of being. And then something happened. We can talk about what actually happened. But now there's a different experience of being on the planet that you have. Yeah. Say more about what that feels it's like. It's like everything's much brighter, like the trees and the leaves and like being outside is is much more vibrant. I feel at like uh, elevated, but not in an arrogant way. I feel like calm. I appreciate everyone a lot more. I think when I started seeing you after the election, I had lost my faith in everything. And now, and everybody, like I thought everybody was unreliable. Nobody could, we could count on. And then now I feel like I have faith in everybody. Like even in people I don't like or are drawn to, I kind of can see, oh, everyone has goodness. People who do bad things aren't necessarily bad people. They're lost. Like, I realized I was lost. Mm. And so, like, getting back on the track, I think, is, I think I see everything. I could go outside and sit on my balcony like I did this morning in silence, without music, without news, without TV, and just think about my day. And also, this is what's so important, is, like, reflection, like, the time to think, the time you allow yourself to think about the things you've done and the things you're going to do is so underrated and undervalued or was with regard to my own, you know, my mm. own self. So it's much more calm. What, Brandon, why don't you chime in right now and yeah, tell I would us, agree. and excuse me for my voice, I, I lost it because I've been talking about myself for so many weeks in a row. Uh, I definitely think that there was almost an instantaneous uh, change from her sessions with you coming home. It was immediately a much like softer, more thoughtful in her response time. Um, and I guess that was the biggest immediate change. And then over the last year, we've seen how she applies that in other ways. So it wouldn't just be with me, it'd be with other people in the house or her friends or when we're out places, we've gone on trips together and I see her being thoughtful about how she's going to respond and the time she's going to take. So it's not just like a knee jerk reaction to something she's feeling now. And before her going to therapy, it was easy for me to rationalize those because I'm a lot like her in that way. Like I have a very short fuse. Things irritate me and they irritate me to a hundred. Like there's no middle ground. Yeah. I don't like the same question twice. Like I, I'm like, fuck you. If somebody did that, I had no patience for any, for anything. Right. Like don't waste my time. You've already asked. Let's move on. And that's how I was. So when she would get like that, I could see myself in that and acknowledge like, I know how she's feeling. 
she's frustrated or if it was technology, if it was someone around her, it was that she was getting mad at herself, not necessarily at the situation. It was like, why can't I control how I'm feeling? Like, I don't want to feel like this. And it wasn't until actually a few months ago, probably she was, she was so caught up in herself that I had to step away from being the assistant and look at her as someone I care about and say like, you're wound very tight. Are you okay? Like she was standing there with her shoulders up to her ears. And I could just tell like something wasn't right. Like she had to take a minute to be like, Oh, someone else is acknowledging this in me now. Like, I don't know what's wrong. Like this person. This was after I spilled a Yeti. This is the Yeti of ice on myself, like driving down the driveway it fell all over my lap and I lost my shit. And I was on a video app with him talking to him. So he saw it happen and he saw me like really lose my shit. But there's also a moment in that video where when it gets done after the initial, uh, you know, frustration. We'll be live streaming this video so everybody can enjoy it. Yeah, it's good. Um, but there, there's a moment at the end where she's like, why can't anything ever just go right? And that's something I say to myself, like, why is everything difficult? Like, why can't I just put this cup in the holder and it not fly out of the fucking car? Like, that's something that happens to everyone, but it feels like it's only happening to you. And so when it got done, she was like calming down and she had to do that for herself. Like she had to pull over and breathe. And it's those moments where I'm like, therapy helps, not just you know, people who've gone through extreme trauma, but people who feel out of control because there's so much going on nowadays that they have to take a moment to like stop themselves and breathe. And that's been a huge, you know, change, I think. Oh, fantastic. Fantastic. You know, there's so much to say about, you know, how these changes came about. What do they really mean, you know, in terms of, let's say, your brain and what's changing in your brain? Because the brain continues to grow throughout the lifespan. And when you have a certain kind of focus of attention that therapy can provide and meditation can provide, it actually changes the brain in some really helpful ways. And so it isn't just like a temporary change. It's actually changing the structure of your brain to allow you to have the mind, which in part is related to the brain, it's not the same as the brain, but allow your mind to have the spaciousness. People call it presence. You might call it mindfulness. You could call it just open awareness. But this idea is that you're feeling from the inside and Brandon, you're seeing from the outside what those changes actually involve. And they're calming and they're maturing and they give you the sense of flexibility. And there's all sorts of other positive things we can talk about that are likely going on in your body, like reduction in stress, improvement in cardiovascular functions, actually a reduction in inflammation, improvement in the immune system, and even there's an enzyme called telomerase that repairs the ends of your chromosomes. And when you have the presence you're experiencing, Chelsea, and that you're witnessing, Brandon, you actually optimize that enzyme so it repairs the ends of your chromosomes, kind of like if you have a shoelace and you have that cap on the shoelace, it allows you to put it through the hole in the shoe. Well, when you have the caps on chromosomes get whittled down from stress or aging, then what happens is the chromosomes, your DNA, aren't able to help the cells function or reproduce. They get sick and die, and you get sick and die. So actually, mental presence, what you're experiencing now, optimizes an enzyme that's going to help repair the ends of your chromosomes and slow the aging process. Okay, well, I think well, that's, that's really, all you needed to tell anybody. That's really what it's I all mean, about. Yeah, that's all anybody really cares about, <laughs> especially in this town. But, Dan, it does seem like what you say, and a lot of what Chelsea references in the book is the identification, awareness, modification. What is the acronym that you use? I am. I, I am, am, yeah. And we came up with that together. I, oh, y really? You may think I had that before, but I'm telling you, Chelsea, being in therapy, let's say our relationship, it changes me. 
So we're talking, right? And something comes up and, and I'm thinking, what can I say now so you can remember this? And that's the first time the I am acronym came up was in that moment between you and me. And so I would think of it as we created it. Okay. Yeah. Well, you love the word we too. Muy. 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 Yes. It's not just, see, this is something I need to be reminded of because at first with self-care, self-help, self-awareness, you want to get better at being you. You want to be a better person, but then you become very self-absorbed in that trying to be a better person. It, it can become self-involved and self-absorbed. And the very thing you're trying to get away from is to be less self-involved. And then, so I understand it takes a certain amount of time that you have to focus on yourself to get healthy. And then after that, how do you, you know, when you, you talk about other people and your community and the rest of the world, because I don't want to be about me, I want to be about everybody else as a collective. Um, I I do feel like the therapy, there is, a, there is an aspect of me that feels like, especially with all the stuff I'm listening to and everybody I'm reading right now, which is all about mindfulness and being present, it feels like you can get to be like a spiritual narcissist. Yeah, you, you know, this is such an important point. So you just said it so beautifully. I'll just, if it's okay with both of you, I'm going to repeat what you just said. Um, and I know you don't like repetition. So, <laughs> so I get myself ready for Chelsea's reaction. So here's what you just said so beautifully, that some people interpret, whether it's therapy or meditation, as kind of some self-indulgent, you know, self a reinforcing thing that's all about me, 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 me. When actually the it's the surprise reality that when you dive into, let's start with therapy, when you take the time to focus on your inner feelings, your inner sensations, so this would be the sensations of your body, which are the origin of emotions, and then emotions have not just the bodily sensations, but they also have the meaning that's up in your higher part of your brain. So we talk about body sensations, being aware of what's happening right now. Like in therapy, Chelsea, sometimes I would say to you, please stop talking. Maybe sometimes I didn't say please, but please stop talking and just be with what your body is feeling. And there's a reason for that. It wasn't just like, oh, this is kind of just what I feel like doing. No, to slow down and just let the body speak to you because you actually have a brain around your intestines and a brain around your heart. The first brains are your heart and your intestinal brain. The head brain came next. It's your third brain. But up in that third brain, your head brain, you also have autobiographical memory where things like the death of your brother will have a certain kind of meaning, the impact that happened then when you were nine, and all the ways in which that then goes back and has you change what your body's feeling, like an ache in your heart because of that incredible loss of Chet, right? So now you can't be aware of that as a nine-year-old. It's too much, especially because no one's supporting it. And so the comfort zone of I'm not going to feel my heart gets embedded in the way the head brain functions, right? So at that moment in therapy, when I say to you, Chelsea, please stop talking, the talking is from your left hemisphere, right? Which is so interesting. A lot of word, 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 and you're unbelievably smart. I'm just going to say it. So you're really, really bright, and your left brain has got incredible ideas and thoughts, and you're amazing with language. But autobiographical memory is in the right side of the brain dominantly. And it's the right side of the brain that takes in the signals from the body. So while both sides of the brain are emotional, it's the right that's more about the tender emotions of our social connections and what the body is feeling. The left is more about I want to control what I'm feeling. The right is just feeling it 
and not be in control of it, right? They're mm-hmm. both important. And where does your ego lie and your right or your left? You know, that word ego, as we've talked about, you know, can be used differently by different people. So Freud used the word ego to put it in between the id, which would be kind of lower structures in the brain, if you want to put them in the brain, and the superego, which would be your conscience. And the ego is like in between working things out. Other people like Eckhart Tolle and, and others use ego more like, um, you know, it's all about the separate self versus I'm, as my wonderful colleague Otto Scharmer talks about it, you know, an ego view versus an eco view where you realize you're part of a system. So that's another way of using the term ego. So, you know, that's probably um, an area of the brain that's called the default mode that's on both sides. And when you sit in a scanner, for example, and people say, okay, don't do anything, just wait, and you're in this big old scanner, well, it's these midline areas, the middle, that are in the front and the back. If you want to know the names of the medial prefrontal cortex and the posterior cingulate cortex and other areas, but just think about it in the middle. And so left and right middle is busy, 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 me, 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 me. And by the way, what do you think of me? Oh, and you think that of me? Well, this is what I think of you. And this is what I think of me and all this stuff. So it's the midline area. It's a good area. It's a great area. But when it's overly active, you get anxiety, Mm-hmm. self-obsession, depression. When your ego is too big. And if that's anywhere where the way you're using ego, that's probably, quote, right. how it is functioning in the brain. So the good news about this, this, all these practices, both psychotherapy and especially mindfulness meditation, help that default mode become less self-preoccupied. Now, here's coming to what I started with, which is the amazing things you said. When people come for therapy or when they do really powerful forms of reflective practice called meditation. Meditation, by the way, just means training the mind. Ironically, they seem like self-indulgent things, but when you can take, let's say, your life story that has a blockage in it, and I call it an incoherent narrative, you know, and there's lots of ways we can talk about that, but the bottom line is when your life story has got a blockage in it, you need to do the work to work on the blockage. And ironically, when you deal and heal with that blockage, you come to realize that who you are, and that word self is a tricky word, but the self expands. So you realize, yes, you're in a body, but you're also connected to other people and nature. And so it's not going from me to we, where you have what's sometimes called a spiritual bypass. You go, I don't, I'm not going to deal with my traumas. Let's just go to the collective. No, I like to use the word we, M-W-E, because you want to have a coherent narrative of your own life history. You want to know where you sit in terms of a history and sometimes racial issues and gender issues and religious issues, those are all important about the me. Then we, we need to realize we're also deeply interconnected and it's that we that helps you see, I can do my meditation to take care of my presence and really open up this mental space. And as I do that, and as you did really in an emotional way, people couldn't see it, but I could see it in your eyes, when you're saying, you know, I see the positive in all these other people, even people I don't like or don't share their, in, you're inferring political views, I can see there's something positive and they may be lost. And that's not the way you used to talk, right? So then you come to realize, wow, I'm connected to other people and there's something positive in everyone and I'm connected to nature too. And this is the we aspect. And so the irony is, that doing the reflection of meditation and the work of therapy frees you up to realize the deep interconnection and love we all share. Which is just such a nice, a nicer way for me to live. 
like, I mean, a lot of people already know this and a lot of people probably don't. But for me, I didn't, I always thought awakening was just like, you know, it was just like vagina talk. Like it was just a part of like, I was like, oh, meditation universe, blah, blah, blah. I've said this all before. Okay, we're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back. Okay, so anybody who wants to get therapy or anybody who's interested in therapy, it is available to you online. Anybody who is listening to this podcast is obviously interested in the subject matter. And if you don't have your own uh, therapist already, there is online counseling for you. It's called BetterHelp. It offers licensed professional counselors who are specialized in all sorts of issues like depression, stress, anxiety, relationships, sleeping, trauma, anger, family conflicts, grief, self-esteem, and more. Uh, You can get all of this online in a safe and private environment. Anything you share is confidential, and it's very convenient. So you can schedule secure video or phone sessions, plus chat and text with your therapist. And if you're not happy with your counselor... You can request a new one at any time. That's right. Best of all, it's a truly affordable option. And for Life Will Be the Death of Me listeners, you get a 10% off your first month with the discount code CHELSEA. So why not start today? Go. I'm going to. Okay, well, go, Brandon. Betterhelp.com slash CHELSEA. Hey, guys, it's Bobby Bones. I host The Bobby Bones Show. And I'm pretty much always sleepy because I wake up at 3 o'clock in the morning. A couple hours later, I get all my friends together, and we get into a room, and we do a radio show. We share our lives, we tell our stories, we try to find as much good in the world as we possibly can, and we look through the news of the day that you'll care about. Also, your favorite country artists are always stopping by to hang out and share their lives and music, too. So wake up with a bunch of my friends on 98.7 WMZQ in Washington, D.C., or wherever the road takes you on the iHeartRadio app. Brandon, don't you think you need to start meditating after talking about this? I still haven't committed. I do think it's becoming more accessible, though, in the way that there are so many meditation apps now that will really guide you through the experience. So you don't have to sit there and just think, like, how the fuck do you meditate? Do you just sit here for a few minutes and try to not think about anything? You know, these apps, like, you like Headspace. Yeah, I like Headspace because I just, yeah, I don't find him annoying. And that's the first thing is you have to find something that doesn't annoy you. Right. If you're me, you have to find something (laughs) that doesn't annoy you. And a lot of it's like the time, I don't know, Dan, you can speak to this, but a lot of it's the time of day. Some of it works better for people in the morning or at night. What about meditating while I'm stoned, Dan? Because I I find my meditations when I'm stoned, I get, A, I'm more excited to meditate. And when I'm stoned, I have great creative meditations where like all this stuff comes to me that I write down after I'm done. You know, anytime you can meditate, that's great. So if you <laughs> meditate when you're stoned, that's good. And <laughs> that's, that's that part. And Brandon, your question about like when and stuff, you know, <clears throat> there's a lot of interesting things. There's one thing just to say is, you know, there's ancient contemplative practices that are, have been around for 2,500 years, 2,600 years, you know, on, systematic ways of training the mind called meditation. Then there's in the last, oh gosh, you know, about 20 years, there's been systematic science studying some of those ancient practices. And they've come up with three things, uh, at least, that are kind of foundational to do in meditation. And those three are easy to remember. One is, and you've described all of them, one is, you know, learning to focus attention. So even if that's just for like a minute where you say, I'm going to focus on, you know, let's say um, a rock in front of me, or I'm going to focus on my breath if that feels safe and comfortable, or, you know, my toes, whatever it is, a minute, I'm going to do that. And when I get distracted, I'll return 
to the focus that I've chosen. And whatever it is, the breath has got some interesting positive things because it's a cyclical thing, in and out, in and out. But for some people who've been abused, for example, it can be pretty scary um, and evoke all sorts of memories in the body. And so they can get a panic attack just by focusing on the breath. So if you ever do any app or anything, you know, that Chelsea and I talk about or with Brandon here, we're talking about it. If you start doing something, be very sensitive to your own specific needs, you know. But the idea of that presence you're talking about, Chelsea, is to be able to sit in awareness and, you know, I think of it like a wheel, but it's like the hub of the wheel. And if all the things you can be aware of are on the rim and awareness itself is in the hub, to sit in that hub and be able to say, bring it on. If there's something that's giving me a panic attack, I'll stay away from it from now. Maybe I need to write in a journal or go to therapy. I need to work on why that's giving me a panic attack because there should be no part of your body that gives you a panic attack. If it does, it's a little signal like, mm, maybe there's a little work to do. And don't bypass it. Use it as an invitation to do some work. Yeah, I think that's the thing. We always want to get rid of our self-doubt or bad thoughts, mm-hmm. or I did. I always thought, oh, how do I get these thoughts out of my mind? And it's like the only way to get those thoughts out of your mind is to quiet your mind and accept those thoughts instead of trying to reject them. Exactly. Well, and, you know, the research is really, really clear. It's exactly what you said. Acceptance. Let's take that example. And resistance to change also is something I've learned, to not resist change. Right. To not resist a situation that doesn't work out the way you want it to work out, to accept it and to move through it. And in an like, you know, in an in a way that is to not fight change all the time. Cause you know, I that's I think was one of my biggest wake ups is to not resist to go, oh, this friendship is shifting or this situation is changing. Instead of being, no, 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 that can't happen, that can't happen. It can happen, it's going to happen. Go with the flow of it instead of against the flow. Right, well, let's talk about that because first of all, and I'm not going to do this too much, but if you want me to do it more, I can. But two researchers, David Cresswell is one and his colleagues, and Steve Hayes and his colleagues have both shown in this powerful way that acceptance, just like you're saying, is the key element for why these practices work. So what you're saying, Chelsea, has got tons of science, great science, backing it up. And as, as usual. <laughs> so uh, the acronym I'd like to use, as Uh-oh, you know. Oh, here we go. Wheels I and like acronyms. I acronym. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> do you like acronyms, Brandon? Yeah, I, I do. Half the people like them, half the people hate them. I don't know what to do because I'm an addict. It's actually an addiction I have. I need your help for that. They just come to me like the I am that came to us. So Cole means curious, open, accepting. There's the acceptance. And loving. Right. And so even when you look at these three things, like the first is you're focusing attention. That's the first of these three pillars. The second is you're opening awareness. And this is the idea of acceptance. Because if you say, you know something, and both you, Brandon and Chelsea, kind of show elements of this. And Chelsea, I think from before, you could really resonate with him. Brandon may still be there with you. You know, we go around life and the brain is called an anticipation machine. So it's always getting ready for the next thing. Now, why does it do that? That's how we survive. If you're just completely in the present moment without getting ready for next, then when that saber-toothed tiger comes because you didn't smell it or didn't hear it around the corner, you're dead, you don't make babies, you don't pass on the trait. So the brain is just naturally getting ready for next. That's what it does. It anticipates next. So for some people, depending on their personality, and personality is kind of something that grows out of both your attachment experiences 
and your primarily genetically determined temperament. So we can talk about that later, but temperament you're born with, attachment experiences are kind of your relationship experience in your family, and experiences in general combine to make your personality. So for those two reasons, some people have super strong filters getting them ready for next. And let's just call that expectation. This is how the world should be. You know, your cup is not supposed to fall out of its holder in the car. Let's say that, Brandon, for the example you gave. So let's say you're a person in your brain, your head brain, you know, that the way you work through your childhood, the way your temperament combined with your attachment formed your personality. So in your personality, you got really strong expectations. That's great. You have big feelings. If Chelsea's correct, you're sensitive, you know, and you're emotional, and that's beautiful. And you can have high expectations. So what this means is that your brain is always getting ready for next. And it says, cups should not be out of their holder in a car. Well, now the car bumps, the cup didn't exactly fit in there, and now it falls out, right? Not a huge deal, but it's a great example. You gave that, right? Mm -hmm. So now in your brain, what happens is, holy shit, this is not right. The world is falling apart. The way I comport myself in the world is I expect what is supposed to happen. And when those things aren't happening, then what should have been is not there. I am now shooting on myself. Right? Does it feel like that? You're yes, smiling. Uh, yeah. You because say, because say, everything you're saying is so reflected in my actions. Let's hear it. Let's hear it. Well, my reaction to that is anger, which is why it's so easy for me to see that in her in her adjustments, because if it's not done the way I think it should be, and as an assistant, I have an opinion on how everything should be done at all times. So yeah, it's it's normally like a very quick, this is not the way it should be done, and how I want it done is the way it should happen. So then if it's not done that way, it is an immediate irritation, anger, frustration, but it's normally not the other person's fault. It's not, you know, it, that's me. Like that's something I have to reflect on after the fact, even though normally I've already yelled at someone by that time. So. Well, exactly. So let's go with that. So anger, there are three huge, you know, systems below your higher part of your brain, your cortex. Anger is one of them. We'll talk about the others later, but anger is an emotion. It's really constructive, actually. It's when something not right is happening. It's the you know, an emotion, we can get to the big discussion of that, but emotion evokes motion, and it's all about meaning. So in that moment, the cup comes out of its holder. The emotion is what, you know, the meaning of that is it wasn't right. And now the activating state in your whole body called anger is let me right the wrong, right? Mm-hmm. It's like that. So because the shoulds, the expectations, pre-existing ideas of how things should be, those are called judgments or something. You know, you are living this life filtering everything through this kind of cone, if you will, like a little filter, a little funnel that says, was this thing supposed to happen or not? Because the way everything's going to be okay is I've got this whole grid of expectations in the world. So what Chelsea is inviting us to consider is that acceptance means you have a spaciousness of awareness that's beneath all those judgments, those expectations, those shoulds, that just says, the cup came out. I'm really mad that it spilled. I think I'll get a smaller cup or you know, I'll get one of those rubber things to put in the holder to hold it more tightly or, or whatever you do. You can even feel the anger arise, but it doesn't burst out of you. You're not yelling at people you know, or yelling at yourself. And there's a clarity. So it's not that it gets rid of the emotions. It kind of like creates a space. I like to think of it like if you can imagine awareness as like a container of water 
So some people have a container of awareness that's like the size of an espresso cup. And let's say a challenge like the cup coming out of the container is like a tablespoon of salt, right? If your container is only the size of an espresso cup and life dumps the tablespoon of salt in there, oh my God, it's too salty to drink. But imagine if you could do, like Chelsea has done, these practices and working through your narrative to make it coherent instead of blocked, where awareness now becomes 100 gallons in size. Mm -hmm. Now life shoves a tablespoon of salt at you as a challenge. And what does it taste like when it's stirred up in the 100 gallons? Not much. It's fresh water. That's what this does. That's why you're seeing a change in Chelsea. Because Chelsea, you have expanded the container of your awareness. So it's curious, open, accepting, and loving. Cool. It's cool, right? It's really cool. I love an acronym. (laughs) There you go. And now what you're doing is you've built your focused attention to do this, your opening awareness. And the third pillar is you're developing this loving intention, this kind intention. And it's amazing that this naturally arises. And you, you can speak to it, Chelsea. How does it feel each day to have this access to a feeling of tenderness and love for not just your inner life, but people in the world around you? Yeah, I feel much more mature. I feel like uh, adult-ish for the first time in my life. Like I feel centered and I feel grounded. I feel very much in control of every situation without inserting myself. I feel I'm not where I'm going yet. I understand that this is just part of the journey. But I know that like, oh, I feel so non-reactive to so many things and it happens all day long where somebody will say something to me and I'm like, what would the old you do and what is the new you do? And and the answer is always like, don't react. There's no need for it. And half of the time I when I think about it the next day, it's not even necessary to respond or react. You know, obviously I'm not perfect. I screw up a lot too. And sometimes I do react to things, but I definitely have a sense of awareness now. Like I'm aware of my behavior before I do it, when I'm doing it, after I'm doing it, not just maybe like before. Beautiful. You know, in the, you know, in the science literature, here's what we would say about the incredible thing you just said. Two big things. One, there's something called, um, meta-awareness. In science, we use the letters M-E-T-A to talk about a thing on itself. So like metacognition is thinking about thinking. Meta-awareness is you're aware of awareness. So you're aware of the contents. A lot of people don't have that. You've now developed that. So that's the first But I do feel very self-absorbed with the amount of time I spend thinking about how I uh, respond and react. That makes me feel like I am... A little too self-involved. I know. So, Chelsea, I know how hard you can be on yourself. And this is a good example of a moment where you may not appreciate this, but the changes you've made in this short amount of time are huge. And so it's new. So you're comparing what would the old me do? What's the new me doing? And so it's natural to, you know, be very aware of that. And as time goes on, it's going to become more you know, natural, and you're not going to have to do that kind of reflection. Now it's fine, and you don't need to beat up on yourself. The second thing I want to say about the science of this is there are two big brain states that we can be in. And, you know, if you want to do the exercise to evoke this, we can certainly do it if you want. But one is um, a receptive state. The other is a reactive state. So you said earlier, I realize I don't need to react. Reaction usually involves four Fs of a survival kind of 
reactivity that's fighting back, fleeing, freezing, meaning tightening up your muscles and being temporarily not able to move until you figure out if you're going to fight or flee usually. But the fourth F is fainting, or some people call it feigning death, where you collapse out of helplessness. Now, all four of those Fs are what our mammalian nervous system has to deal with threats. So when you use the word reactivity, I don't know if you meant this with this kind of specificity, but before you and I worked together, I would bet you that if we could get inside your nervous system, you literally were in reactivity mode. You know, things were a threat to your expectations for all sorts of reasons we can get into Mm -hmm. if you want, but that you had a high, like Brandon, a high expectation filter. And so when life didn't fit the way you thought it should go, you didn't just say, oh, that's frustrating. No, you got into reactivity, fighting, fleeing, Mm -hmm. freezing, fainting. You know, all these Fs get activated. It's very exhausting for the nervous system, for the whole body Mm -hmm. to be in a reaction to threat mode Mm -hmm. all the time. So the word reactivity for clinical use and scientific use is used for this notion of a state that is activated when a threat is there, a threat to one's own integrity in life. That's in very um, contrasting distinction that's different from, you know, a receptive state. Right, right. Which was what it felt like after the election, especially reactive. Okay, well, this sounds like a good time to take a break. Hey, podcast fam, I'm Jada Pinkett Smith, host of the Red Table Talk podcast, and I want to introduce you to two of the most important women in my life. My mom, Adrian Banfield Norris. She's really old school. I never wanted you to be in that situation. Like, no, not date Will at all. <laughs> Everything is by the book. And then we have my daughter, Willow Camille Rain Smith. I'm going to be like my ancestors and just do what I need to do. We've brought these three generations to the Red Table to talk about family, relationships, social issues, and a whole bunch more. We are all going through something, right? So put on your headphones and join me, Jada Pinkett Smith, Gammy, and Willow for your favorite episodes on the Red Table Talk podcast. This table is like glowing. Aww. Y'all like X-Men. X-Men. <laughs> Black X-Women. <laughs> Thank you. We appreciate it. Listen to the Red Table Talk podcast presented by Facebook Watch and Westbrook Audio on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, what Can you tell me what you thought when you met me? What was your impression? Could you tell that I was really stuck and in pain? I mean, you are you, a professional, so I would assume. Yeah, you know, it's so interesting. When I was asked to do your show, just to start there, you know, I'm I'm really busy writing books and editing books. It's and okay. Blah, blah, you blah. don't have to have seen my show or know who I am. Right. Well, that was that what I want to say. So I felt belt, my my assistant was madly in love with you, and she said you got to go on the show. I said really? They said I, she said yeah. I said okay. So it's on my calendar. I don't look much. She just tells me what to do, and I showed up there, and I was actually teaching another class in another country in the other room, and and then I come out there. So then, so I, the first time we met was when you're interviewing me about the brain. I actually had no idea what, what we were doing, except I was in a school, and that's cool. I love schools and love kids. So um, when you were asking me the questions about the brain, first of all, I thought you had some really smart questions. Second of all, um, you told me what we were going to talk about, but then it started getting a little focused more on this one issue of drugs in the brain and brain and drugs, and at what age you know, do you really screw up your brain? And So I was looking at you, you know, and so for me – professional and personal 
you know, have to be distinguished, but in the end, we're all just people. And so I know you were doing a show, a professional show, so I'm looking at you as a person who's doing a professional show, and I'm going, wow, you know, there's something up here. I don't know what it is, you know, but whatever. And so I think I joked with you about something, and I, I said, you know, do you want to talk more about this, you know? And I think you even said, you know, I'm the funny one here, not you, or some, something. It was really cute, whatever. So I just thought, that's fun, whatever. And then the show was over, and I said goodbye, and that was it. I didn't know I'd ever hear from you again or see you again. So when my assistant said, um, Brandon called and, you know, Chelsea's assistant is setting up this appointment, I said, okay. And so I guess it didn't surprise me because it seemed like you had things you want to talk about more. And, um, you know, as you mentioned earlier, you could get pissed off at people or irritated or whatever. So I figured, okay, I guess I didn't irritate you. You know, so that's kind of nice. That felt like a nice thing. It didn't irritate you enough to say, you know, whatever. So when you showed up and now we're at our first session, you know, therapy is like one of the most amazing things to be in because you bring your whole self as a therapist to sit down and let's take that first session you and I had. You know, I'm there as a human being. We've had this small encounter before. You're now sitting in the office in the chair across from the chair I'm sitting in. You're a human being, and now we're sitting there, right? And so for me as a therapist, it's this moment where perhaps because, you know, I've been like obsessed with the idea of what's the mind and what's mental health and what's healing all about for all these decades. For me, the mind now that's created between the two of us is something that I couldn't create alone and you couldn't create alone. So we're doing this together. So it's really the beginning of a relationship. And in that relationship that was unfolding, I could feel, um, a, and this addresses your question, a kind of pain that I had no idea what it was. I knew nothing about your history or anything, you know, except that you decided to come for that session. And so I could feel something was up. And as you probably know, this isn't going to be a surprise to you, you do a lot of talking or you did a lot of talking, and it was really fast. And I think maybe even that first session when I said to you, you know, please stop talking. <laughs> <laughs> not not in general, but about a particular altogether. thing. Please stop talking altogether. <laughs> no, it, it was because because I know a little bit about the brain. You know, um, it's like where attention goes, neural firing flows, and neural connection grows. You had a whole bunch of left brain talk, which is fine, and my left brain is able to keep up with you, whatever. Um, and then I want to invite your right brain into the therapy session, which means letting the left brain not shut up, but just take a moment to breathe. Let your right brain become more present, which doesn't have the words that the left brain has. It has some language, but not the kind of language the left has. And as I mentioned earlier, you know, it's going to start getting you in touch with what your body is feeling, so bodily sensations and autobiographical memory, whereas the left doesn't have direct access to those things. So by asking you to please take a pause from all the talk. In that moment, I could feel, you're asking me what I felt, I could feel there was some, some stuff up. And I had no idea. You could have, I'm telling you, you could have absolutely said, this is too weird, or I like talking, screw you, or whatever, and you could have not come back, you know, ever again. So I want to just really put it out to you that you had the courage to have some guy tell you to stop doing what your inclination was, which is to talk and make jokes and all that kind of stuff. And for me to see how bright you are, how left brain strong you were, 
and how you needed to develop more of your right hemisphere. So to me, it's all about a process called integration, which means honoring differences and promoting linkages. And it felt like the push to keep on talking and this reactivity had a kind of a left-sided dominance. So the feeling inside of me was that there needed to be some integration in your life. You could call that healing. You could call it, you know, working on blockages, whatever words you want to use. But yes, I felt like something was up and I felt really um, uh, deeply moved that you wanted to come do something that was really difficult to do, which is to look inward at stuff. I didn't know what the stuff was going to be. I had no idea. And right. I don't know if you did. Did you have some, did you have, why, no. did, why did you come? I just what, didn't think my life was working out for me at that particular point. I was just too angry and I thought it was about Trump and I realized, you know, that's not the root of my anger. That's just a symptom. And I finally had something identifiable to put my anger on. So no, I didn't know that I was going to come in and like let it out. It just kind of happened naturally, which, you know, is normal. Uh, okay, well, thank you very much, Dan, for being here. And thank you, Brandon. We will be back next Thursday with a brand new episode of Life Will Be the Death of Me. I have added some stand-up tour dates to my Life Will Be the Death of Me sit-down comedy tour. I'm coming to St. Louis, Minneapolis, Nashville, New Orleans, Westbury, Long Island, uh, Atlanta. So those are on sale now. And what else? And well, don't forget your book is still on sale. Oh, yes, the Online book. Online or in store. Oh, yes. Oh, so sexual. Life Will Be the Death of Me. It's available wherever at your local bookseller, hopefully. Life Will Be the Death of Me is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. If there's something that's interfering with your happiness or that's preventing you from achieving some of your goals, I want you to know that there is online counseling available for you. It's called BetterHelp. BetterHelp offers licensed professional counselors who are specialized in all sorts of issues. So as we all know, everybody's dealing with something. So whatever your issue is, I want you to know that there is an outlet for you. I know everybody can't afford to go to a psychiatrist or seek professional help in their personal lives. You may not have the time, but everyone can go online. It's confidential, and for uh, Life Will Be the Death of Me with Chelsea Handler listeners, you will get 10% off your first month with discount code CHELSEA. So you can get started today. Go to betterhelp.com slash Chelsea. SoftRip Radio is a special operations military-grade podcast hosted by a team of combat-hardened veterans. We're an unbiased source for frontline military news and behind-the-scenes war stories from America's living legends. We've interviewed the infamous SEAL Team 6. You always treat the dogs with respect. Skilled snipers. So we went there to secure the facility and enable these individuals to do their job and maintain this hospital. Clandestine operatives. I had a bullet in my skull. And so many more. So stay smart. Stay sharp. Soft Rep Radio, the everyday carry podcast. Listen to Soft Rep Radio every Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.